This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in LGBTQ Plus Studies. I'm your host, Shoni Chatterjee. I'm also a PhD candidate in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I am delighted to be in conversation today with Professors Tyler Bradway and Elizabeth Freeman about their recently released, absolutely remarkable co-edited book entitled Queer Kinship, Race, Sex, Belonging, Form. Professor Bradway is Associate Professor of English at State University of New York, Cortland. And Professor Freeman is Professor of English at the University of California Davis. I'm thrilled to be joined by both of them today to talk about their new book published by Duke University Press this year. Um, Welcome to the New Books Network, Beth and Tyler. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. Um, I've been following your work for for some time uh, now, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I love the book. Um, the introduction that you have co-authored particularly has expanded my own understanding of queer kinship and its uh, contextual significance and um, specificities. And I have so many questions today um, about it for both of you. But before that, uh, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual journeys and affective influences that you've had along the way as well, and how you came to queer kinship both individually as well as uh, collaboratively and how it has an enabled putting uh, this volume together. Um, well, I guess I'll start first because I've been doing this just a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> I'm ancient. Um, I my, my dissertation and first book were actually about weddings. And what I was interested in was the difference between kind of what's um, in the wedding as a performance, all the kind of residual understandings of kinship that kind of make their way into the wedding versus the way that once completed and turned into a marriage, um, that performance doesn't translate, not all the roles in that performance translate, not all the symbolics translate, and marriage laws is pretty restrictive. Um, And so I was looking at a series of case studies of kind of failed weddings, and then there's one chapter on sort of failed honeymoons, but like, you know, weddings that don't actually end up doing what they're supposed to do and kind of securing or cementing a marriage. Um, And that book is called The Wedding Complex, Forms of Belonging in Modern American Culture and was published way back in 2002. And I um, 
was sort of felt sort of shamefaced as one does about one's first book that I hadn't really made my way that systematically through kinship theory because I was so busy like um, like accumulating you know cultural stuff and reading all kinds of critical theory and and some anthropology and so on and so forth and so I had an invitation um, from a colleague who was co-editing a, a kind of reader in LGBT studies uh, Molly McGarry with George Haggerty. And they said, you know, write us a chapter. And I said, about what? And they said, anything you want. And I thought, oh, well, this is a good time for me to systematically work my way through kinship studies, especially kind of queer kinship studies or the kinds of kinship studies that sort of made it possible for people in LGBT studies to do the kind of work they were doing. So really kind of beginning with um, David Schneider's A Critique of Kinship. And I wanted to put that together with... um, you know, with queer theory and sort of see what came of it and ended up writing um, an essay called, um, I think it's called Queer Belongings. Is that right, Tyler? (laughs) That essay published in 2007. So not that long after my book, in which I was really trying to, to come up with a kind of performative sense of what kinship really was like what what were bodies doing that kind of cemented bonds as kinship um beyond the symbolics and language of kinship and you know how what did it mean that sort of dependency and vulnerability were were at the center of those bonds um and so that's then i and i was thought i was going to write a second book that was going to be about like kinship in the 19th century blah 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 which i never did um and so that essay didn't do much in the world until I put it up on academia.edu. And then all of a sudden, you know, it it had some legs and people read it and cited it. And then I'll turn the rest of the story over to Tyler. Um, Well, I guess I would start because you asked a little bit about our, our affective influences as much as our intellectual journeys. And so I'll just say that I come from a a very dysfunctional family, you know, um, filled with alcoholism and violence and things like that. And so as much as my coming out as bisexual, um, you know, in my teen years was like one thing that, um, you know, in some ways put me in a very ambivalent relationship to kinship, my ambivalence and and the complex feelings I had about it, the, the sort of queerness I think about in terms of, um, building relations beyond, you know, the hetero patriarchal nuclear family, like that desire was there for me very early on. And, um, and so I've always been hungry for models of queerness that are not just about identity and not just about even, um, sex per se, but about relationality. And so when I, um, was in graduate school and I was working on my first book. Um, afterwards, I, I was just really excited by so much of affect theory. Um, and, and the book that I ended up writing, which is called Queer Experimental Literature, The Affective Politics of Bad Reading, was really informed by all of this, you know, exciting stuff. Eve Sedgwick, um, for example, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, really important queer affect theory was thinking about relationality in all kinds of new ways. And that was thrilling to me. Um, and at the same time, as I was um, finishing that book, it occurred to me that I didn't really have a great definition of what relationality is. And this is a, a kind of question that ended up in the introduction to queer kinship, because when Beth and I talked about it, we were like, yeah, what is, if, if, kinship is supposed to include all relations or, you know, basically like what's the distant distinction? Where's the difference between relationality and kinship? Because I found myself thinking of essentially all relations as kin relations and, and there are real limits and problems with doing that. And so, um, so really I sort of turned to kinship out of this, maybe not frustration, but concern that relationality was almost too 
too big, you know, too expansive. Um, and so that was really when I discovered um, Beth's work and that essay, but also, um, I mean, all of her work, this podcast could become like a Elizabeth Freeman Stan podcast um, because I, I've learned like her, her work is so influential for, you know, essentially like all of my thinking, but in time binds, um, you know, what was so thrilling to me about that book was here was this person thinking about affective and temporal relations in, in these richly embodied ways Um but also in ways that allowed us to talk about attachment and dependency. Um, and often I feel like sometimes queer theory and critical theory too have positioned attachment itself as something to elude or escape. And so in Beth's work, it was really exciting to discover a model of you know, how could queerness itself offer models of bonding or belonging together or attaching or holding fast Um and so, uh, and so that was what really drew me then to like kinship because it's both, you know, a language for that potentially, but also one that touches on, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, the material and the political in really crucial ways. Yeah, that's, that's wonderfully put. Um, I love the cover image of the book. Uh, could you describe the image for our audience and tell us how it speaks to the critiques and complexities of kinship the book uh, explores? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'll just say uh, quickly, it's um, uh, a photograph by the artist Clifford Prince King um, from 2019, and the image is called um, Communion. Um, and uh, Beth, you'll definitely have to jump in to describe it because I'm colorblind, so I can't do the colors justice. But essentially, you know, what it is are two figures under a sheet. There's illumination coming up. And so we have these sort of silhouettes um, underneath a... Um, a sheer uh, um, fabric in a in a, a potentially domestic setting. I love there's like a light switch on the wall, and we're on a bed. Um, but we don't have a lot of sense of, you know, the the context. This could be a number of different possible spaces. And I guess what what really spoke to us about this image, um, you know, among other things, was that um, King's work is really interested in um, how. Uh, black queer men forge intimacies um, under conditions of extreme, you know, surveillance and racism and homophobia. And a lot of his subjects um, uh, have, you know, HIV. And and so there's something really interesting to us about, you know, thinking different forms of queer kinship that can be expressed through other kinds of art forms. Um, and, and there's something, I don't know, illegible about the image that I really like too, that opens up all kinds of possibilities. Would you like to say uh, something about the cover image? Oh, cover I can definitely and, start and with the cover image. Sort of, I, I should um, confess that my computer crashed, and so I was busy getting back online um, through most of my um, through most of Ty what Tyler when Tyler was talking. And so, Tyler, have you already spoken about the cover image? So, uh, I did my best to describe I'm it. I'm going to um, just very briefly say and, uh, there's yeah. that, that sense of something being kind of like lit up from within. In the cover that I really love, that whatever intimacies these two figures are kind of forging, um, it has its own it has its own energy, um, and yet it also kind of lights up the room around it. Um, so there's something about their their practice, and then the kind of the the the, the rest of the setting sort of receiving their light that um, strikes me as apt for the kinds of energies that we talk about in terms of um, you know the resilience and the creativity that people bring to kinship. But I'll stop there because I don't want to repeat anything Tyler said accidentally. 
No, that was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Um, you begin the introductory chapter by refusing, in a way, the romanticization of kinship um, and are able to alert us to the violence engendered by it and its trouble ties with state power. Um, you also state, and I quote, uh, queer theory has always been a theory of kinship. Um, could you talk a little bit about the illusions of queer theory with regards to kinship and how does this book contribute to a conversation um, within queer and trans studies about kinship that was needed but um, was perhaps lacking? It's interesting to, to think about that question because in a certain way we were returning to an older conversation um, that Judith Butler had had with um, with Gail Rubin um, in the 90s, um, the early 2000s, um, possibly even before that, because it, I think it was reprinted. Um, and the kind of tension between what a post-structuralist account of kinship might look like, um, in which you wouldn't necessarily take for granted, for instance, that the incest taboo was universal and transcultural. Um, and you would um, imagine um, things like I was trying to imagine with that piece I wrote on kinship, um, how, um, how performance and Judith Butler's notion of performativity, you know, of things that sort of do what they say, can produce bonds that last over time. So that's the kind of, you know, that's how Judith Butler's work has been understood and received. And she was conversing with Gail Rubin, who is an anthropologist and an ethnographer, and who's interested in sort of how structures replicate themselves over time. Um, and in the kind of, um, the, the way that um, social relations are, are both slower to move sometimes than theorizations, and yet also sometimes in excess of what's been theorized, you know, in advance of what's been theorized. And so we really thought it's not that queer theory hasn't talked about kinship. I think one of the things that our introduction starts with is kind of like kinship is everywhere in queer theory, um, um, given how important um, psychoanalysis has been to queer theory, um, given how Michel Foucault's work um, uh goes from thinking about alliance um, and into what he calls the deployment of sexuality. And he doesn't see sexuality as superseding alliance, but the two of them as kind of entangled. Um, given, you know, Marxism and Marx and Engels's critique of the, of the bourgeois nu nuclear family, um, that you kind of can't even start queer theory without thinking about kinship. And then there had been some really active um, conversations about kinship and, and uh, Kath Weston's 1991 book, Families We Choose, which was really a landmark book in, in bringing kinship kind of back into, um, well, not just bringing it into LGBT studies, but also kind of, you know, revitalizing kinship studies within anthropology, um, I guess was considered quite passe. And so there was a lot of energy in this sort of between 1991 and, you know, the mid 2000s. And then we actually, um, we actually uh, thought there, it, it sort of, there had then been a kind of long silence, or there had been a way that other conversations about kinship, for instance, in um, critical race studies, had been animated, say, by Hortense Spillers's very, very important work about the kind of kinlessness of enslaved people. Um, and these conversations hadn't met each other. They were kind of uneven and jaggedly put together. And um, the queer theory part wasn't as good as at talking about the violence of kinship and the way that kinship is used as a tool of colonialism and genocide. 
um, as the kind of um, critical race studies part of things. And then queer of color critique had had emerged. So um, so it was kind of time to come back to the topic um, in the wake of all this new work and thinking that that wasn't quite talking to each other. Yeah, I would just add to that, that 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 was part of, I think, what was so exciting for us in the process of putting the book together is that there have been some, you know, some genealogies of queer thought that have positioned these different um, modes um, or approaches as um, incompatible in some ways. And yet we kept seeing all kinds of exciting um, overlaps precisely around the question of kinship. And it seemed to us that this was one way to... Um, you know, reconnect a number of different conversations across um, queer, queer color critique and, and trans studies as well. The other thing I just wanted to add is that, you know, something that's really important in, to me from Beth's work <laughs> is the, uh, um, and if folks haven't, haven't, I, we got to plug your, your, your other book, um, Beth, uh, as well, because, you know, the, one of the things that Beth opens up for us is a thinking from Foucault get, moves from the the deployment of alliance to the deployment of sexuality. And Beth then, you know, asks us to think about a deployment of affinity. And when I, you know, was reading Beth's work, that was really exciting to me to think about how sometimes there have been misunderstandings of Foucault as understand, you know, as thinking it almost like a, a teleology or that sexuality displaces entirely alliance. Um, but if they sort of laminate or fold onto one another, then it does beg the question of like, well, where are we at now um, as the deployment of sexuality has changed? And so I really love Beth's concept of the deployment of affinity as also getting us to think both about the re the ways in which re relationality now is being reorganized, um, how it's becoming infused with all kinds of different power um, relations. And it's something that we need to be, you know, really aware of and attuned to um, across a, a range of different discourses from genetics to, you know, Facebook friendships to, you know, uh, we thought a lot about how the COVID-19 pandemic was rewriting in some ways um, different maps that we have for affinity. So, um, so it seemed to us very exciting in a way that queer theory actually has a lot to teach other disciplines and other conversations as well about, about um, relationality now. Right. Um, while I was reading the book, I was intrigued by the term kin coherence, and you write about it at length. But would you like to tell our audience what you mean by kin coherence and the significance it holds for contemporary and dissident understandings of kinship uh, and queer kinship studies? I'll just maybe start, and Beth, if you want to pick up, you know, but we were looking for a, a term that would help crystallize this, you know, this confusing. Uh, dance that we are seeing in which kinship seems on the one hand less significant <laughs> as a term in some ways uh, to contemporary life and then more significant than ever. It's something that is, you know, incoherent in that way, but in a dynamic um, way with all kinds of complicated energies. So on the one hand, you know, we're seeing uh, all kinds of, you know, ongoing rupturings and shreddings of kin relations, especially for um, people of color. We can think about incarceration as a way, as a, as a technology of the state for um, rupturing uh, kinship and, and furthering, um, kinlessness, especially for black people. Um, and, you know, we could think too, we talk about this a bit in the introduction around, uh, you know, the Trump regime and its, um, you know, 
insidious efforts to uh, to weaponize um, kinship against uh, migrants. And so, so at the very same time, we're seeing, you know, all kinds of ways in which the, the kind of nuclear family, the traditional white patriarchal hetero, uh, family is receding as a, as a norm. Um, and, and so how do we understand those two things together? Um, that was what Kin Coherence helped us to kind of get a handle on. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I, I think we were also um, interested in, I think John D'Amelio, he has this landmark essay called Capitalism and Gay Identity, where he really captures, you know, the kind of Marxist, Marxian contradiction that um, industrialization broke up um, household economies and sent people out into the workplace, um, often in gender segregated workplaces, um, men first, um, and and then they formed sort of new alliances and new senses of solidarity and belonging and togetherness, um, um, some of which eventually became gay communities and sort of then pushed back against the household as you know they could do it in part because the household was no longer the center of economic production. And then the state kind of retrenched in a lot of ways around um, what we now think of as a nuclear family. Um, and so that was a 1983 article. It was really exciting because this thing that it's not it's not incoherent exactly, but it's this kind of zigzaggy effect, which is, you know, liberating at first for men who want to have sex with men outside the household, less so for women who are kind of. Um, shut out of the workforce and 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 kind of consigned to the household or among the working classes, you know, sent out to the factory and then still expected to keep up the house. But then they're they become part of these interesting same sex environments. Um, and there's and then there's a kind of state, you know, retrenchment of of this idealized family that in some sense the state and the economy have worked hand in hand to dismantle. So um, so that was kind of the inspiration, I think, for for looking at what King Coherence looks like now, where it's like, say, for instance, the folding in of gays and lesbians into marriage, which is still precarious. We still don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do, but that goes hand in hand with um, putting migrant children in cages and, you know, never reuniting them with their family. Um, so there's always this sort of interesting, like, two-step and temporal lags and contradictions within what's happening with kinship at the state level, the cultural level, and the economic level. Right. Um, in the introduction, you advocate for kin aesthetics as uh, a core methodology for queer kinship theory. Uh, could you tell us how this also enables, and if it does, an understanding of materiality, queer kin temporalities, and, and as you put it in the book, uh, reimagining the life world of queerness itself? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a term I actually um, developed in my very first book, um, The Wedding Complex, um, that we really wanted to kind of run with and see what happened. And um, it's partly grounded in the fact that um, kinship is a language. It's a symbol system. It's, um, it's a way of making order and sense out of the world um, symbolically and with linguistic terms. Um, and of course, that's kind of, you know, the movement like that's how we get like Claude Levi-Strauss in the beginning of structuralist linguistics and so on and so forth. Um, but because, um, because it's a symbol system, it's available for, 
for figuration, you know, for for elaboration, for fantasy work, for um, for sort of turning terms against themselves, um, for all the kinds of work that people do, kind of on the terrain of of culture and aesthetics. Um, and so that's that's very important not to just dismiss that as immaterial because it has a kind of reciprocal effect on what we think of as the material of kinship itself. Um, you know, in other words, um, um, policy, um, customs, rituals. I mean, kinship is always kind of multivalent in terms of like what's the terrain of its actual um, practice and um, how does that compare with um, the kind of grids and structures that we come to understand the world with through kinship. Um, and so so kinesthetics describes kind of the work people do on that that structural terrain, right, which looks so rigid, you know, there's kinds of, you know, mothers and fathers and in-laws and, and then there are gaps in the kinship tree, right? Like we don't have names for our fourth cousins or our second cousins that are, you know, we don't have honorifics for them. And um, some cultures do, and some cultures have different different concepts for the maternal line and the paternal line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's already, you know, some really interesting places where you can you know, start thinking. And then just in the vernacular, there are just ways that people talk, you know, do this kind of symbolic work. So um, one of our examples is I actually have a relative who I, you know, I, I think of her as my um, my sister out of law, you know, because she's the ex of the brother of my ex. Right. <laughs> so we're still family somehow, but we don't really there's not really a name for it. Um, and so we can make up names and to describe these affinities. Um, you see this, I think, especially in um, the work that's been done on trans communities. Um, and so um, we have um, an essay um, by Delara Kalishkan, whose name I may not be saying right, um, World Making Family Time and Memory Among Trans Mothers and Daughters in Istanbul. And it's less about linguistics per se, less about language and words and terms, but more about how um, parenting of newly emerged trans people happens regardless of kind of age cohort, right? And so trans mothers are people who've been out the longest, you know, um, as trans and they, um, um, they have their children. Um, but part of the way they cement the bonds is through kind of memory work and storytelling. Um, and so it isn't just the terminology, but it's also the, the passing on of, of stories and the creation of kind of myths and legends and so on and so forth. Um, and that to me is, is highly kinesthetic, that work, right? Because it's kind of, um, it's, it's moving along the, the axis of language, but it's also moving along the axis of kind of fantasy, imagination, desire, and the past, and sort of how the past gets remade and, and, and moves forward um, in time with, with new people um, who are asked to remember it. Right, Tyler, would you like to add anything? Um, I mean, I think Beth said it beautifully. I would just, I guess, add, um, you know, going back to what I was, what, what got me really excited about Beth's work and about you know, thinking more about kinship, when I was, you know, really uh, working initially on affect theory, I was really excited by the idea that aesthetic objects, literary texts, um, they affect us, you know, that we have passionate attachments and um, intimacies that are threaded through and around, um, you know, the things that seem the most disembodied. <laughs> and, um, and so that that's like a problem that's always been really just interesting to me in general, the ways in which aesthetics are um, relational. But what what I thought was really important in, in what Beth um, 
just said and, and in her own work is the ways in which kinship sort of needs an aesthetics. And so whether that's the image of the family tree, but we could also think about the marriage plot. Um, and so, you know, going back to our cover, you know, we might understand somebody like Clifford Prince King as, you know, using <clears throat> photography to reimagine what um, communion even means, you know, so it's not just a, a representational model. It's a, it's, and it's not only a performative one, it's a, it's a richly affective um, way of working um, and reimagining what relationality might be and, and could look like one that, that could be um, uh, lasting or sustaining or, or might be entirely ephemeral. So um, yeah, I don't know. To me, it, it's a, it's, it's become a really useful way of, of thinking about all of these, you know, minor, this is uh, uh, to use, um, Nat Hurley's um, uh, work, and she has a wonderful chapter in our piece on on relationships with other people's children. Um, but she talks about minor kinships, and you know that we don't often have idioms <laughs> and figures. And so, kinesthetics is is one way to think about how we might um, how queer uh, culture produces and and proliferates them. Yes, absolutely. Um, for this book, you bring together critical race theory, queer theory, and kinship theory, and you state, and I quote, that kin coherence and anti-blackness are deeply entwined in the production of black, black people as kinless, um, unquote. And and in a way, forced kinlessness can also be, to my mind, understood as necropolitical here. Um, could you talk a little bit about how critiques of anti-black racism and racial capitalism offer queer kinship studies and how it helps us reimagine Imagine um, trans and queer anti-racist, anti-carceral, anti-fascist, and anti-imperialist kinship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe I'll start, and Beth, if you want to jump in. But I would just say, I mean, I think this this is such a wonderful question because it really gets to what we thought were the stakes of doing the book in the first place, which is to say, you know, really making sure that when we're talking about queer kinship, we're foregrounding at the very core um, histories. Um, particularly around uh, anti-blackness, uh, among other you know forms of uh, you know racialization that have been um, at the you know at the core of the state's weaponization of kinship, and so you know essentially we feel like, or my understanding of our project was that we don't want to think about kinship that's in a way that is detached from the state, but also is not to that is detached from the histories of state violence. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing, you know, is to, as we're thinking about any of these concepts around kinship is to really, uh, you know, learn from, you know, a variety of histories around, uh, um, racism and, and, um, and the state, which, you know, as your question suggests, I mean, you know, carcer incarceration itself, fascism, imperialism, these things are, you know, modes of power that have used kinship and continue to use kinship in, you know, in deeply um, violent racist ways. So, so that's the first thing that I would say, um, Beth, if you want to jump in. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe, dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about, for instance, um, Christopher Chamberlain's essay in our collection, which is called A Kinship, and makes this, you know, begins with the fact that the relationship, or the relationship, the the encounter that was supposedly at the center of Lawrence v. Texas, um, the decision that anti-sodomy laws were unconstitutional, um, actually involved a black man who... um, when he died, um, he didn't die in that encounter, but um, was um, in some sense denied funeral rights by the state. His brother um, asked asked for assistance um, um, for enough money to, to kind of get an urn for him and run an obituary. Um, and he never actually um, got a funeral. Um, and so the enfranchisement in some sense of white gays and lesbians, you know, came at the, in the same scene as um, police, um, entering the apartment of Lawrence, the, the, the white man in Lawrence v. Texas. Um, and, and part of what's not in that narrative was they weren't actually there to arrest on sodomy charges. They were there because somebody had reported that there was a black man there with a gun, right? So go, that's Garner. Um, so Garner didn't get like the funeral that's sort of at the, you know, that's sort of the kinship equivalent of the wedding, right? And was dropped out of the, the kind of Lawrence v. Texas um, narrative. And Chamberlain goes on to say basically um, any, any theory of kinship, including the queer critiques of kinship that doesn't have a theory of the, of the mode of racial production from slavery to policing is inadequate. And he makes this really startling, it's a very complicated article, but he basically says you've got to put policing at the center of the politics of kinship. And that is really counterintuitive. We don't think when we think about anti-Blackness as it plays out um, in policing as having obviously to do with kinship, but um, but Chamberlain does and he, and he kind of traces it out. And so we were very interested, and I don't want to, you know, give away the the entire essay, um, but it's really, really smart. And it's, it's really like, like just unpredictably brilliant. Um, and, um, so we were looking for essays that sort of did these kinds of things, you know, that, that allowed for, um, existing, um, work coming out of say Afro-pessimism, you know, which is in part, you know, centered on the kind of production of humanity as against blackness. So humanity, including kinship as against blackness um, into some kind of dialogue with, with queer theory, which had tended to be so utopian and to not think about how every, every kinship formation, however utopian, however ephemeral or symbolic or linguistic um, also produces non-kinship, produces, um, you know, kinless people. That's what kinship does. It says you are kin and you over there are not kin. Not only are you not my kin, but you are incapable of producing kinship and your being is not understood within the frame of kinship. So that's um, a really powerful essay in that, that, that um, in the collection. And I think just those kind of interventions, you know, where we found them were so incredibly exciting. There's another one that um, Mark Rifkin's essay, um, which is titled uh, Beyond Family, um, Kinship's Past, Queer World Making and the Question of Governance. And that is an essay that um, really pushes back against liberal notions of the family as a sphere where um, official political decision-making shouldn't take place, right? That sort of 
you know, kinship, kin is private, their kin relations can be established by the state, but the state can't actually, kinship can't, can't sort of um, determine who has power in a state and who doesn't have power in a state. And that's in part how, if I'm understanding Rifkin's piece, right, it's another very complicated, very brilliant piece, um, how Native American structures of political power were dismantled. So, you know, you dismantle kin relations and you were also dismantling relations of, of governance. And that's part of how genocide worked. And then Native Americans were remade, you know, sort of land, stolen land was allotted back under the Dawes Act only to heads of household, um, which wasn't how Native American affiliation worked. Um, but that first move to sort of say, um, whatever your bonds are, they are private and they're not part of what what is considered political agency um, was part and parcel with genocide. Does that make sense? So I think that's, you know, it's those kind of essays that really were so exciting to get abstracts for um, when we were, you know, just thinking we, we know that we know that that there are these really powerful traditions of thought about kinship coming from Black studies coming from indigenous studies and coming from queer studies. And there are very few places where they overlap. And those are the people we want to hear from as people who are, who are putting these things together. Absolutely. It's, it's an incredible collection. Um, the conversation you have with Kate Weston is, is very powerful. Could you talk about its significance for the book and the choice behind the conversation serving as the book's epilogue? Um, um, yeah, uh, you, go, ahead, go, for, go ahead, Beth. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I mean, part of it was Kath Weston is so kind of foundational to, um, you know, to LGBT kinship studies, to kind of queering kinship studies. And, and we knew that we wanted her in the book and she's very busy and very sought after. And so this was a way to sort of get her into the book. Um, so there was, there was some pragmatism to that, but also what's kind of wonderful about that uh, interview and the reason we decided to have it be the epilogue um, was that she gives an overview of her work in the past and kind of how her work has unfolded since then. And some of it just doesn't look anything like what you would imagine kinship studies to look like. She's, you know, interested in eco-criticism and film studies, and now she's studying finance camp capital. And she clarifies how her you know, training in kinship studies has been so fundamental to this work that doesn't look like it's about kinship at all. And so for us, it felt like an, an essay that both, or, you know, an interview um, that both sort of paid homage to somebody, you know, very important in the field, and also could show our readers, like how many directions kinship could take you in. And so I was thinking about how Eve Sedgwick's work on sexuality especially epistemology of the closet, made it so clear that all these domains that don't look like they have anything to do with sex or sexuality are very much inflected by it. And that Weston's work is a real example of, of how kinship studies can be um, at the center of or kind of um, a catalyst for really, really different kinds of work um, across a career. 
Right, Beth, in your conversation with Western, you note that often ethnographic exchanges and stories produce relations that experience a crisis of language. And perhaps this crisis itself reveals more about such uh, relational encounters than practices of naming do. Uh, But kinship can become a part of that language. uh, And it is, as you observe, and I quote, formed in the scene of the encounter. Could you talk a little bit about the place of language in reimagining kinship and how languages of kinship can offer opportunities of anti-oppression political organizing in the present um yeah um that was really interesting to me because i'm not an anthropologist and i don't do ethnography in any systematic way um and i thought was thinking about how um people who do do field work will often sort of say um you know and thank you to my family in you know wherever they did their field work um, and experience themselves becoming part of the web of interdependencies that are in their fieldwork scene, even as they're also, you know, trying to, to do observations and, you know, it's, it's become an increasingly self-reflexive, um, field, understand themselves to be influencing the scene of encounter, even as they're supposedly observing it, you know, and, and so, um, there's a way that, that, and, the, and some of these kinds of forewords that say these kind of thank yous are the kind of anecdotes within the anthropological encounter um, use the kinship terms of the um, of the of the people in the in the field um, and sort of you know I became an honorary whatever it is and so there's this um, this very interesting I mean you could say sometimes appropriative um, move that happens, or you could say there's a kind of shift on both terrains that, um, that the population in the field that's being studied as it were, um, are figuring out what relations they want to have with the anthropologist, the ethnographer, the anthropologist and the ethnographer is figuring out the same thing. They're all figuring out what the boundaries are. And so they invent very creative ways to, to sort of talk about this. I think in a, in a, larger sense, um, the last part of your question about how languages of kinship can offer opportunities of anti-oppression political organizing in the present, um, that's a really complicated one because the language of family is often used to kind of cover over exploitative, you know, labor practices, for lack of a better word. Um, so, you know, in the academy, we're often recruited to do things for the department for love of the students or like, you're our honorary den mother. So you bake the cookies for the, you know, whatever department meetings or whatever it is. Um, and so we have to be very, very careful, I think, not to assume that languages of kinship are always oppositional or even are the best ones to choose for, um, uh, political organizing, um, but expanded, I mean, the word, Jody Dean has a book called Comrade, right? And so the term comrade um, is one that on the one hand says, like, we have no relationship that can be naturalized to something non-political, right? It, you know, we're not sisters, we're not brothers. Um, on the other hand, you know, it signals a kind of affiliation and I have your back. You know, I'm your comrade, you can count on me. And so that's one that I think has kind of like is on the sort of blurry terrain between an expansive language of kind of affiliations that you feel that feel affective and ones that are structures of political organizing. Cause a comrade is not the same as a vice chair. You know what I mean? It's a horizontal relationship, right? So it's not a kind of institutional um, term, but it's also not a family term. 
so I'm interested in those kind of terms too that people generate to sort of signal to signal solidarities that that are neither reducible to family nor to institutions, existing institutions. I would just quickly add and give a shout out to Juliana Demartini Brito's um, chapter, which I think is especially relevant for this question. It's called Marielle Presente, the present and presence in Marielle Franco protests. And so it's one of the pieces in the collection that really gets at what, um, you know, anti-oppressive political organizing in the present might look like in the context of Brazil. And what, you know, she points to in that piece are these various different ways in which activists um, have maintained an attachment, a relation um, to, you know, a queer um, woman who is you know, murdered by the state. Um, and in this, uh, in her argument, you know, the language of kinship, as it were, becomes one mode of kind of keeping that relation alive, but also the the kind of promise, the unfulfilled promise of justice um, and a, a, a reckoning with state violence. Um, it, it maybe, uh, it never, you know, satisfies that on its own terms, but it, but it keeps it alive and then allows for other kinds of collective organizing, um, to emerge in its name. Um, so that might be one piece that, uh, that folks might be interested in checking out. Yeah. And I was thinking about the dystopian opposite is Palomi Saha's piece, yes. <laughs> you know, which is really about queering the womb, surrogacy and the economics of reproductive feeling, which does all this kind of work to kind of obviate the fact that a surrogacy contract is a contract, you know, by mobilizing family relations and family feelings. Right. Um, that's an example of what I mean by like really exploitative relationships. Um are often cast in the language of love and family and um, altruism and um, those kind of bonds. It really does bring us to, you know, I love that you'd asked us about language just because it does bring us back to that debate between um, Butler and Rubin. And in Brito's essay, there's a section called grief is a verb. And there is a real insistence on relationality as a labor, as something to be composed. Um, whereas in Saha's essay, there really is, as you're, you're, you're pointing out, Beth, this insistence on, on structure, you know, um, and uh, and so yeah, I'm one of the things that's really interesting. I think across the collection is tracking this question of how much agency um, can or can't be unfolded through uh, a concept or, or or an idiom of kinship. Right. Um, I I love the part of your conversation with Western uh, where you um, call to abolish the family and and you probe. Um, probe that call and and you state that gay liberation and and feminist movements have often failed to grasp the anti-normative ways in which um, families or kin are imagined and and not just by queer people and not just in romantic and erotic terms. Um, And you, along with Western place, emphasis on distributional injustice and inequitable resource allocation, uh, which causes violence and induces harm and precarity in a variety of ways, uh, which you argue cannot be undone uh, without abolishing um, uh, the the family or, or cannot be undone by abolishing the family. Could you talk a little bit about how equity and distributional justice can help us think about um, equitable trans and queer kinship in the present? Um, I'll just start by, by um, kind of recapping a little bit what I understand Kath's um, argument to be. And I really love in that interview where she points out, you know, like the, the alternative titles for her book that she didn't choose. It's not, um, 
you know, the family that we choose or chosen family, it's families we choose. And so I think that's the first thing that she's potentially, if not objecting to certainly wanting to put a little bit of pressure on in the, in the call to abolish the family, um, there is this question that she's raising about like, all right, well, which family, you know, and, and is there, um, is there even such a, a stable thing that we can call uh, the family as a form? Um, but then also too, you know, the, as, as you pointed out, um, she, and, and I think the rest of the collection as well, we're all really interested in, you know, making sure that we don't in, in the, in the radical call to abolish the family, you know, what does that mean for, um, for folks who have never even been allowed to have their kinships count as family. <laughs> so where, do, where does that leave, you know, those modes of, of intimacy and kinship? So, so that's the first, um, you know, thing. The second is, and I think this is, you know, really at the crux of the question of uh, distributional injustice and in, inequitable resource allocation is, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, the, all forms of structural oppression, you know, are not only located in the family. They they spider out, spider web out in all kinds of ways. And so, you know, there is a temptation, I think, sometimes, and Kath is, you know, pushing back on this, uh, to imagine that abolishing, you know, one particular form of the family is going to solve all of those other problems. Um, and so I think, you know, part of what's at stake, or at least what was at stake for me is, is, th you know, thinking kinship in such an expansive way allows you maybe to grasp a few more of the threads on that web. Um, and, you know, what, just to point to a, an, another essay in our collection, um, um, uh, oh, uh, Lee Allen and, um, and John Garrison's piece, which is really, you know, about, you know, kind of critiquing kind of uh, the ways in which queer friendship has been uh, substituted as the utopian space, they are in, in favor of, say, the family, they really try to stress the ways in which um, racism and, and um, class privilege sort of forge um, themselves in and around what we think of as, you know, queer friendship or the queerness of friendship. And so that's a piece that really would, would also ask us to say, all right, well, in the, if you get rid of <laughs> the family, like th those kinds of uh, power relations and injustices are still occurring. Um, but then of course the other, and the final point before I turn it over to Beth is just that, you know, we've often thought in our conversations and in the collection about how kinship comes to sort of be a stand-in it's like the privatization of, of, you know, social welfare, essentially, right. And so, you know, there's a real question about where does caretaking, where are the material resources for um, enabling lives to endure and to flourish? How are those um, organized and distributed? Um, and kinship is one way to think about that. And the state has been very canny and as uh, alongside academic departments and corporations in, in using, um, you know, family as the, as the, you know, the language to force and extract more labor and, and offer less resources. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a question there too about like, all right, well, what are the models that we could imagine that would allow for those resources to be redistributed far more equitably? Um, and maybe that would be a, you know, a different language than family itself. Yeah. And a different structure. I mean, I think partly we, 
you know, I've been thinking as far back as my first book about just my first book emerged, you asked about affect because I was like, why the hell is everybody getting married? Like, why are we, is that why, why are we fighting for gay marriage? Why are we not fighting for broader forms of social justice? Um, and, you know, wouldn't it be an amazing world if nobody had to marry for health insurance, you know, if inheritance tax was 100%. Um, but at the same time, it's really important. Um, this is what I mean by the sort of dialectic um, between queer theory, you know, and critical race studies and, and the centrality of queer of color critique. It's important to remember that um, families and households have not, have been both things that certain populations can't take for granted and have served as bulwarks against larger, you know, forces of societal stigma and oppression. And so, um, you know, resistance to abolishing the family um, might not just be rear guard. You know, there are certainly rear guard versions of it. There are certainly versions that are like shore up the patriarchy, but um, it's, it's really hard. You know, we have to imagine both as much kind of, distribution of resources outside of the channels of kinship so that people who don't don't have legitimate kin, as it were, don't get don't fall through the cracks and get left behind. And so that um, as much um, care and resources are genuinely publicly distributed instead of privatized. But we also have to leave room for the ways that people have forged relationships they would call family. Um, whether it's been under duress or not, that they want to see given meaning um, and legitimacy. So it's an interesting sort of dynamic. Right. Um, what does kinship and particularly queer kinship mean to you in the contemporary moment where queer resistance and subversion exist alongside complicity and assimilationist anti-politics? That's such a hard question. Um, I mean, I think it's a thing we can't, I always think of the, the Toni Morrison phrase, you know, this is a story not to, I think it's Toni Morrison, this is a story not to pass on, I think it's in Beloved. And she means both not to pass on, like not to just keep moving forward in the same way and also not to pass on, right? Not to overlook. Um, and I sort of feel like that's what kinship is. It's something not to pass on, not to not to assume as an obsolete problem or one that we solved or one that if it would just sort of go away, we'd have our communist utopia, um, but also not to pass on, you know, as a legitimizing structure for imperialism, economic exploitation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, um, so that's what it means. I mean, it means taking to me, and again, I'm interested in Tyler's version of that, but it means taking people's bonds seriously um affording people the the means to uh to forge the bonds they want to forge to live in the structures they want to live in um to detach those ideally to detach those from resource distribution um a more reformist version of that might be to expand you know the network of distributional channels um I, I, I'm, I'm frankly a little more of an, I'm an abolitionist when it comes to distribution along the lines of kinship. You know, I think there's just always people who are not going to count as having kin. Um, but in any case, to sort of to think simultaneously about expansion in, in terms of um, what we can imagine and foster and celebrate and to think about abolition in terms of 
um, what we make kinship the alibi for and the, the kind of instrument for, for, for doing violence in terms of that makes sense. Um, I would just say, I mean, I think this is such a complicated question and I love Beth's answer. Um, and I would certainly echo, you know, I think it's just really important to me just in general to take seriously the stories that people tell about their lives. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, something that is, I think, important about queer kinship is it, it does that it takes really, you know, relationality seriously. Um, but it also, and this is something, you know, I was really interested in the wording of the question about queer resistance and subversion. And I think to me, this might just be my own, um, you know, bad reading or something, but I think sometimes at least maybe in my own head, the, the language of resistance and subversion has not had much room to depict things like um, domesticity, caretaking, um, you know, the, the, the slow and maybe not very sexy work uh, that it takes to build a bond <laughs> or to hold on to an attachment. Um, but I don't think those things are not queer and I don't think that they can't be resistant or subversive. Um, but I just think they've been, they've had a hard time figuring as such. Um, and, uh, and so there's something very important to me about, uh, the ways in which, you know, thinking about the practices that, um, underlie the capacity to, to forge a bond, um, are really complicated and dense and they require a lot of labor and affect, um, and resources and space and time. Um, and I wouldn't want those to fall out <laughs> of our narratives around what the political should look like or be. Um, and at the same time, you know, in terms of the question of complicity and assimilation, I do think we're in like a kind of an interesting and weird moment. And I think that, you know, the question of queer kinship helps us or at least helps us to think about it. This is my like argument for why queer theory really still matters um, is because I, I do really think that the, the stories that we're telling about relationality are getting weirder and stranger <laughs> and, um, and not just for queer people. And so it seems to me there's great opportunity and great risk for, uh, you know, imagining ways in which the the restructuring of relationality could lead towards a more um uh, uh equitable and socially just world and uh and so anyway it seems to me uh crucial to think about that and 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 hopefully not not only in terms of the bi the kind of binary of assimilation or non-assimilation i think one of the things that i've learned you know from uh the kind of unfolding of debates around uh, gay marriage, for example, is just, you know, what people do versus, you know, what they would like to do or want to do or going to fight for are, you know, complicated. And, um, and so anyway, we should keep those things both in mind at the same time. I've been wondering about that question for a very long time. And it's, it's beautifully the way you've articulated it. Um, I I realize that we are um, running out of time, and at the end of um, this episode, I've got time. My, I've got time if you need. <laughs> you probably have air date, airing time. Yeah, that's problems. right. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't we don't have schedules. <laughs> yeah, I actually I'm I'm good if you have a few more minutes, but yeah. Right. Um, could you um, briefly take us through then some of the chapters in the book? You have talked about a few of them, um, but if you want to talk about a little more about um, the chapters and the specific contributions to queer and trans kinship studies and, and 
predictions Adolfo is uh, Yeah, I mean, status. there's two essays we haven't mentioned that are actually the first two essays in the book, and I think are, are really crucial to the book in, in very different ways. And, and one is Judith Butler's um, kind of kinship beyond the bloodline. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a highly theoretical um, article um, that, that really goes back to some of her work um, on dependency um, and on kind of what kinship actually is. Um, you know, is, is dependency really at the center of it um, or um, and some of her other work? Um, she said, like, no, actually, rupture is at the center of it. You know, it's you know, it's kinship when the rupture of it feels sort of unimaginable, um, or or you know, it's like, oh my god, I thought we were brothers. You know, that kind of. Um, so that's a really and it's a really important kind of overview of of also um, much of the work that's been done and finishes with um, a lovely reading of Octavia Butler's Kindred, which I think of as a kind of fictional exploration of what um, uh, kind of queer of color critique um, can imagine um, in terms of, of how, um, um, how slavery um, at once destroyed African kinship forms and kind of allowed for kinship forms to emerge that don't depend on blood. And then right following it is um, Bridget Fielder's wonderful article, The Mixed Race Child as Queer Father to the Man, which really takes that, that question of what, what can make kinship beyond blood. Um, and I really feel like, though I didn't know her at the time, I kind of owe the, the time I was writing my first book, I kind of owe the idea of kinesthetics to, to Bridget um, because she's looking at a short story by Alice Dunbar Nelson where um, – a, a man's fathering consists of um, um, a, a kind of endowing um, um, a certain kind of aesthetic um, capabilities um, in, in himself and his son. Um, and they're, and they're both ugly officially, you know, ugly, but they, they kind of become, um, they come to beauty through their, um, through what they can do through, through books and through music um, and so it's, um, she reads the story as kind of um, a, a riff on words where the child is father to the man, um, that this is a different kind of a reproductive relationship um, than, a, than a sort of blood relationship, even if it's already a blood relationship. So those two essays, I think, were, were really central to our thinking when we wrote the, uh, the introduction. Yeah, I would just add, um, and I'm not, I can't, I'm not sure if we've mentioned them so far, but just to kind of group them together and, and give a shout out to Joseph M. Pierce's essay, In Good Relations. Um, Native Adoption, Kinstellations, and the Grounding of Memory, Octus Aftab, Aftab's um, Ecstatic Kinship, and Trans Interiority in Jackie Kay's Trumpet, and then Abodong's Till Death Do Us Kin, Sworn Kinship, and Queer Martyrdom in Chinese Anti-Imperial Struggles. Um, I love all of these essays, and, and one thing that I think kind of unites them, I think is really crucial about them, is the ways in which, in, in, very, in very different ways and contexts, they're all kind of pushing back against a sort of Western um, model of secular kinship, and they're imagining, uh, you know, really different modes of what uh, relationality might look like for um, different communities, indigenous communities, trans diasporic communities, um, and and so, yeah, I would, I, I, I really have thought about a, a lot about those essays, especially Aftab's um, really beautiful piece, which 
pushes back on the transphobic you know surveillance of the of the trans body and this emphasis on 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 the materiality of the trans body and and does a wonderful reading of thinking about what it would mean to first you know write and imagine trans interiority um and how the the language of ecstasy then becomes a, a, a one model for understanding black trans kinship in the diaspora um it's just a really beautiful piece Right. Um, I, I love the book and I'll be thinking about kinship with you through this book in the classroom this semester um, as I uh, begin teaching a course on equity and rights. And um, how would you like this book and its, and its political commitments to be centered uh, in the classroom and beyond when it is discussed? We're so honored. That's yeah, so wonderful. Yeah, we, we sort of looked at that question and we're like, any way you want. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're thrilled that that you're that you're teaching it. Um, and I think I taught a graduate course before we really were deeply into this project. And my graduate students ended up saying, by the end of the course, we weren't really sure what kinship is. You know what I mean? And that's what led me to the question in my in the introduction. Um that I asked Tyler, like, well, what isn't kinship? Like, where do you, like, how do you, you know what I mean? Like if, if everything can be kinship, then what is kinship as a domain of inquiry? And I think that's a really interesting one to sort of keep afloat with students. Um, not that we need an essentialist definition of kinship, but that what kinship is really shifts with the vantage point that you're coming from, from critical race studies, from queer theory, from anthropology, from post-structuralism, from, you know, um, and, and so the object, you know, just, just shifts dramatically, um, with these, these different lenses. And so just even being able to say like in this essay, you know, kind of what is, what's the terrain of kinship? What wouldn't count as kinship in this essay? I think is, is really interesting. Yeah. I would just, uh, I was thinking back to when I taught, um, a class on queer kinship. It was when we were first, you know, brainstorming the idea of the book and, uh, at the end of the semester, I had a student say, uh, when I came into this, it was called queer kinship. They were like, when I came into this class, I thought the queerest thing about me is that I'm gay. But now I think it might be that my parents are divorced. <laughs> and, and I love that moment. <laughs> we had like, we had, a, it's always stuck with me. Um, and so that's something I guess that I, I, I was thinking about, um, as you know, we were working on the collection, it'd be fun, I think, to to discuss in a classroom is like, not just what kinship is, but what is what is queerness? <laughs> and, and um, there are all kinds of ways in which one's, um, you know, proximity or dis disorientation from kin normative kinship broadly construed kind of renders you queer, or you might find yourself becoming queer, <laughs> even to the extent that it might displace your more <laughs> recognizably queer identities. Um, and so I, I just, that could be interesting in the classroom. Yeah, that was Kathy Cohen's um, Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens. That really fundamentally, like foundational article made me realize, well, it sort of cemented something I'd been saying kind of casually, which was exactly as your student, Tyler, the queerest thing about me is I was raised by a single mother. And I actually wanted to write an article called Closets Are Two for Clothes because not having nice clothes was a, a bigger drama for me than like my sexuality. <laughs> So, yeah, like I think also what's queer, you know, what does kinship do to your sense of what counts as queer is really important because, you know, we've had that students often now use the term queer to describe an identity. It's sort of synonymous with lesbian and gay. 
But if you read the Cohen piece and you read some of these essays, you know, you realize that, yes, lack of proximity to the familial ideal is profoundly queering. And that's one of the things that brings older queer studies into conversation with um, with critical race studies. Right. Um, this was a, a fascinating, extremely nuanced conversation about the book, and it, it just makes uh, revisiting the book and, and getting to teach it so much more interesting. Um, would you like to tell us what you're what you're currently working on, what your ne- next projects are, and how does it connect to to this book? Beth, you want to start? Tyler? You oh, start. Right. I'll start. <laughs> I mean, I'm working on um, a series of essays that I hope will become a book, um, which are about um, care, like care labor, um, particularly privatized, unpaid care labor that happens in the space of the home. So things like taking care of the terminally ill, elder care, you know, raising children. Um, And uh, the relationship between those things and reading and the kind of reading strategies that people employ, um, particularly in fiction, because I'm a literary critic, um, you know, fiction, film, et cetera, when they are involved in, in care work. And it seems to me that care work just kind of dramatically changes and disrupts um, the kinds of reading that we do and the, and the way that we read. So thus far, I have one essay on um, reading aloud to children as a kind of disciplinary measure. And I have another essay on, um, take, it was actually, it's actually about taking care of my mother when she was terminally ill and being unable to read anything but the same book over and over again. So sort of rereading and caretaking. And then I have this third piece I'm working on, on kind of um, thinking about um, BDSM, medical kink in particular as a kind of care, like a care work that throws our sense of what it means to read um, into um, complexity. Um, I'll just say, uh, because I am officially Beth's like hype person, um, everybody's got to go read that piece on um, reading and rereading uh, to her um, you know, while caring for her mother. It's in a, in a wonderful collection um, called Long Term. Um, edited by Scott Herring and Lee Wallace. And it's just, yeah, it's just mind-blowingly good. <laughs> um, but I'll just say uh, briefly, um, I'm working on a book uh, that's about group forms um, in the contemporary moment in, in fiction, film. Um, and so the, the, the project actually really comes out of our collection because I was interested in, you know, if we're in a moment of kind of kin coherence, what are the... Um, relational forms, the forms of engroupment that people are innovating or experimenting with as ways of um, belonging together. Uh, and so so I have a chapter on the partner, the thruple, the squad, uh, the cult, um, and the committee. Uh, and, um, and really what I'm interested in is how, uh, you know, different um, what are the kind of aesthetic and and especially narrative difficulties of, you know, giving a a kind of representational form to different modes of engroupment, you know, so there's this kind of literary studies interest, but the, there is a political question too, which is to say, I I think on the one hand, we're living in a moment of great, you know, privatization and pressure to be, you know, highly, individualized, right? And then on the other hand, it really does feel to me like there's this incredible hunger for for collectivity. Um, And yet often that kind of hunger gets articulated in like in these massive expansive categories of even collectivity itself is just so huge and difficult to 
pinned down. And so I'm really interested in these kind of like middle, the middle ranges of relationality. I've been thinking of it, which is stealing a, a phrase and <laughs> from Eve Cedric. Um, but, you know, so how, how do people imagine something between, uh, you know, the individual and then then the, the, the mass, basically. And so these kind of group forms, I think of as um, queer possibilities that um, are potentially interesting in this contemporary moment. Fabulous. These are incredible projects. Thank you so much, Beth and Tyler, for this conversation and for the book. I'm, I'm so glad we could speak about the book today. And um, this was this was such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. It's really been a pleasure talking with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much. We're re- really, really honored and grateful.